Hi, my name is Melissa Powers, and I will be your host for True Crime Asia. Every episode, I'll be walking you through one crime from one country. Before we proceed with the episode, I want to thank two Reddit users, Charles Wiltgen and Jedi Card Tricks, who helped me come up with the name of the show. And I suppose in retrospect, it's pretty obvious, but I'm very much an overthinker. Which is why this show is what it is. If this is your first episode, the goal here isn't just to talk about the facts of a case. Not only will you hear some social context to the crime, together we're going to deconstruct what each crime means from a Western perspective. Last week, we discussed Singapore and how hard it is to look at its folk traditions without referring to the colonial narrative of the West being modern and the East being backwards. This week, we're going to take a look at an unsolved mystery from India, where the subsequent trial by media proves an eerie morality tale about today's attitude towards true crime. India is very, very big. For reference, it is a third of the size of the United States, but also has four times the population. It's nearly impossible to describe India generally because it is a country with a vast amount of diversity and history. It also has a rather complicated geography, which you'll need to understand a bit of to get the case. Our setting is Noida in the year 2008. Noida, which stands for New Okla Industrial Development Authority is a city that was carefully planned and built in 1976 as part of an urbanization effort. Noida is a city in the state of Uttar Pradesh and thus part of the national capital region. Basically, it's one of the most urban areas of India and reasonably close to the capital. A lot of people want to live in Noida. It's affluent, a hot spot for IT companies, an average literacy rate of 88%, and is India's greenest city. So when the body of a 14-year-old girl was found murdered in her home, an upper-middle-class apartment, it's no surprise that the media went crazy. Within two weeks, a write-up for Time magazine would ask the question, India's John Benet Ramsey case? Here is what we know. The Talwar family lived on the second floor of a nice apartment in Noida. The parents, Rajesh and Nupur, were dentists at a clinic. Their daughter, Arushi, was a week from turning 14 when the murder occurred. To round out our cast of characters, the Talwar family also had a live-in domestic helper who would cook and do various tasks. Just so you know, this is very normal in upper-middle-class families across Asia. He went by the name Hemraj and originally came from a village in Nepal. They also had a driver, Umesh, who would become important to the case, so keep him in the back of your mind. More facts. Their apartment was 1,300 square feet. Wikipedia has a detailed floor plan, but I will also walk you through the layout here. So picture yourself walking upstairs to the second floor of the apartment. There's a gate in front of you, it's latched from the inside, but if you push it hard enough and jiggle it, it'll open. On your right is an entrance to the servant's room where Hemraj lived. In front of you is another gate, which is latched from the outside. Unlatch it to find a final door, which is self-locking and needs a key to be opened. Inside the apartment, on your immediate right, is another door to Hemraj's room. 
In front of you is a space that acts as a dining room and living room. Walking forward, on the right is Arushi's room, which is also self-locking. On the left is an undescribed room, likely a bathroom. And at the very back of the apartment is the door to the master bedroom, where Rajesh and Nippur slept. On their bedside table, closest to the door, is where they kept their keys, including the key to Arushi's room. On the night of May 15th, at 10 p.m., Rajesh and Nippur entered Arushi's room to surprise her with an early birthday present. It was a new Sony digital camera. Arushi took a few photos of her parents, then they left the room. The last photo timestamp was 10.10 p.m. At 11 p.m., Rajesh asked Nippur to switch on the internet router, which was located in Arushi's room. Nippur entered, saw Arushi reading in bed, turned the router on, and left. Rajesh used the internet till around 12 a.m. Around this time, Arushi's friend tried to call her. This was normal for the two of them. But tonight, her phone was either off or dead. He called the landline, but no response. Between 12 a.m. and 2 a.m., both Arushi and Hemraj were murdered. At 6 a.m. the next morning, the Talwar's housemaid rang the doorbell. Usually, Hemraj would answer, but there was no response. Nippur opened the innermost door and said that she should wait for Hemraj, as he was probably running an errand. Remember, the middle gate was locked from the outside, meaning Nippur could not open it from within, and the maid was unable to open the outermost gate to access the innermost one. Nippur could probably exit through Hemraj's room, but it's likely that she didn't want to barge in. The maid, however, did not want to wait and asked Nippur to throw down the keys. As Nippur went to throw the keys down, she called Hemraj's cell phone. It was answered, then the call was dropped. She called again, but the phone was now off. Nippur threw the keys down to the maid. At this point, Rajesh had awoken and entered the living room. It was then that he noticed a bottle of whiskey with blood stains on the dining room table and asked Nippur who put it there. The two began to feel uncomfortable and they went to check on Arushi. As the door was self-locking, they expected her to answer to their knocks. But to their surprise, the door was already open. And inside, they found Arushi on her bed, her throat slit and blood everywhere. The maid arrived inside in time to see Rajesh screaming. The Talwars asked her to leave. They called their family and friends immediately, unsure of what to do. One of these friends called the police. Law enforcement arrived at 6.50 a.m. and the media arrived at 8. By the time the police got there, there were at least 15 friends and members of family in the apartment who had arrived to help the Talwars. The crime scene was already compromised. The most obvious conclusion to everyone at this point was that Hemraj had probably assaulted Arushi and run away. No one could contact him, and Rajesh actually offered the police money to travel straight to his village in Nepal. At 8.30, Arushi's body was taken for an autopsy. Rajesh's brother, Dinesh, accompanied the body, as did the driver, Umesh. Allegedly, Dinesh asked the police superintendent and the presiding doctor not to put any references to sexual assault in the report. 
quick note, this may not be nefarious. It could just be Dinesh trying to shield his brother from further harm or the shame of their daughter having been sexually assaulted. There was no evidence of rape. A doctor did suggest, however, that her private parts seemed to have been cleaned after death. At 1 p.m., Arushi's body was brought back and placed on ice slabs in the living room. I wish I could speak to the regularity of this occurrence, but I really don't know how unusual this is. But at 4 p.m., the body was sent for cremation. The Talwars say that the police claimed no further use for her body and wanted to cremate it before it became grossly decomposed. The Talwars also began cleaning the room after a policewoman gave them the okay, which, yes, is ridiculous since it had been less than 24 hours since Arushi's murder. During this time, some of the Talwars' friends tried moving the bloody mattress to a place on the terrace, but they found that the terrace door was locked. So they asked a neighbor for the key to the adjacent terrace and placed the mattress there. Although it was in plain view, no one noticed that Hemraj's body was slowly decaying on the Talwars' terrace. The next morning, some visitors saw blood on the door handle to the terrace. Witnesses the previous day didn't see it, so it's likely that this was actually from carrying the bloody mattress. But, suspicious, a police constable asked Rajesh for the key. But Rajesh did not provide it. According to him, he didn't remember exactly what happened, but did not recall stopping police from going anywhere in the house. So, this is really a he said, she said situation. The next day, the 17th, the Talwars set off to douse their daughter's ashes in the Ganges River. The key to the terrace was still missing, and at this point, police officers decided to break the lock. There, they found Hemraj's body decomposed to almost beyond the point of recognition. Hemraj and Arushi were both killed the same way. There was blunt force trauma which caused the death, then both their throats were slit. The police suggested a golf club as a weapon, Uh, Rajesh did play golf, and they also suggested, for the throat slitting, a kukri, a traditional Nepalese knife. This is not a difficult knife to buy, Um, you could probably purchase it at any random shop that sells souvenirs. So Hemraj was also dragged 20 feet across the terrace and most likely was killed there as his blood was nowhere else in the house. They also found a bloody shoe print on the terrace of a size 8 or 9 shoe. The cuts were in the same place for both victims, indicating the same killer, and described as surgical. This brought immediate suspicion on the parents, who were dentists. After all, they were also the only ones there that night. Or were they? This is where the case gets murky. See, the media uproar over the case pressured the police to release their findings quickly and bring speedy justice to Arushi and Hemraj. And the police had already bumbled their way through most of the investigation. With so much of the crime scene destroyed, higher-ups actually estimated 90% of the evidence had been destroyed by the multiple visitors and the two early OKs to clean. Thus began a series of wild accusations that were backed with sometimes false statements. First of all, What evidence was left for the police to work with? There was no forced entry to the Talwar apartment, but don't forget that there were two entrances, one through the main door and one through Hemraj's room. If someone had been invited in, it could either have been from Arushi, from the parents, or from Hemraj. 
and none of the other residents would have been any wiser. Three cups were found in Hemraj's room, along with a bottle of beer, whiskey, and Sprite. Allegedly, Hemraj didn't drink. He also didn't eat his dinner or go to sleep, judging by the state of his sheets. Rajesh insisted that he closed Arushi's door before going to bed. Remember, it was self-locking. But Nippur believed that she left her set of keys on a wall hook by the door after turning on the router, which means that someone could have opened the door with the keys or simply knocked on the door to get Arushi to open it. But the latter is unlikely, as she was found dead in her bed. Now, Arushi and Hemraj both had mobile phones that went missing after their deaths. Arushi's phone was found on a path near the home by a stranger, but this wasn't discovered until a year later. Turns out, the person who found it wiped it, thought it was just a free phone that they were lucky enough to get. Hemraj's last cell phone activity was a six-minute call with a telephone box a little more than half a mile away from the Talwar apartment. Unfortunately, the police do not know who this call was made to. The morning of the murder, however, recall that Nippur called Hemraj's phone. He was already dead, and his phone was gone, but it was picked up, then disconnected. The cell tower ping from this picked up call suggested that the person with the phone was in the area, or even still in the apartment. The police never found Hemraj's phone. So who were the suspects? First, obviously, there were the parents. Hemraj's sister would later say that Rajesh was a short-tempered man who would beat Hemraj if he was angry. Allegedly, Hemraj had told his sister that the Talwars threatened his life over spilling family secrets. While I am unsure what these secrets could be, one police inquiry was actually into a possible affair that Rajesh was having with another dentist at his clinic. According to one police theory, Hemraj blackmailed Rajesh about the affair, so Rajesh killed him and killed Arushi for being a witness. Another theory was that Arushi and Hemraj were caught in a sexual act, and Rajesh killed them both in a fit of rage. The media was particularly attached to the idea of an honor killing, but Rajesh and Nippur, being a wealthier, educated couple, countered that they were too liberal to do such a thing. Their marriage was also intercaste, another example of how they were liberal. We'll talk more about the honor killing narrative in, in our discussion later. But theories aside, the actual evidence for the Talwars engaging in the crime was simply how quickly Arushi was cremated, how quickly the house was cleaned, and how Rajesh did not provide the terrace key. There was no actual physical evidence. It seems that the terrace key was actually on Hemraj's keychain, and thus Rajesh could not have had it. Also, Rajesh's shoe size was two sizes smaller than the footprint on the terrace, and most importantly, and this is where the driver, Amesh, comes in, Rajesh's clothing proved that if he had murdered Arushi and Hemraj, it was premeditated and could not have been a crime of passion. Umesh had seen Rajesh in his pajamas when he returned the car keys the previous night. In the morning, the maid's description of Rajesh's pajamas were identical. And there were no bloodstains on his pajamas, which would have been impossible due to the throat slitting of Arushi and Hemraj. If the crime had been premeditated, Rajesh would have had to change out of his pajamas into other clothes to murder the two, and then to change back into his pajamas. Now, 
Did Rajesh have an extramarital affair with another dentist? Hard to say, but according to Rajesh and the alleged other woman, this tale was planted to the police by one of his dental assistants, Krishna Thadari, who held a grudge against Rajesh for being a critical boss. So Krishna and Hemraj were good friends, and both of them were from Nepal. Once, Umesh heard Krishna and Hemraj complaining in the car in Nepali. According to Umesh, when he asked Krishna what was upsetting them, Krishna said that he planned to take care of Rajesh. Krishna also lived in the same area as the Talwars, so if he had had Hemraj's cell phone, it would have pinged at the right tower. The police searched Krishna's apartment and found a bloodstained pillow, bloodstained trousers, and a bloodstained cookery, the Nepalese knife we mentioned earlier. Open and shut? Not quite. They proceeded to give Krishna a narco examination, also known as a truth serum exam. This is when an IV is inserted into the suspect and they're given some kind of drug to make them woozy and lower their inhibitions. I should note here that every suspect was given this test, including the Talwars, and many of these narco tests from this case are available, for some reason, for viewing on YouTube. Now, during this exam, which is not admissible in court, much like the lie detectors in the US, Krishna claimed that there was a second murderer. The police eventually interrogated two other Nepalese men, Rajkumar and Vijay. Vijay, Rajkumar, and Krishna were all friends of Hemraj's. And under the drugs, the three men all claimed different versions of how they murdered Arushi and Hemraj. Generally, the tales began with Krishna expressing a desire to get revenge. Either Arushi heard them, called them out on what they said, which led to her murder, or they decided to sexually assault Arushi as revenge. They entered her room, she resisted, and so they killed her. Then, Hemraj got cold feet, so they killed him. Then, they escaped. However, no one could prove anything had been done. Plus, the men's defense team pointed out the very reasonable explanation that they were under the influence of drugs and could have easily been manipulated or coerced into statements by the police. None of their DNA was found at the house, none of their fingerprints, and no DNA could be extracted from the bloodstained cookery. And the bloodstained pillowcase is up in the air because while it tested positive for Hemraj's blood, some police officials think it was a clerical error and actually it was Hemraj's pillowcase. What? And they all had alibis who said they were in their homes, although no one actually saw them physically past 1230. The murder happened in 2008 and the investigation dragged on till 2011, when a police official wanted to charge the parents with the crime. His superiors denied this due to a lack of evidence for anyone having done the crime. The Talwars were furious, however, saying that they had been condemned in the eyes of the media. A protester, so convinced that the Talwars were guilty, attacked Rajesh in public with a meat cleaver. This protester had previously attacked a police chief in public for an unrelated crime. He just really hated the justice system in India. So Rajesh suffered severe cuts, but ultimately he was fine. During this time, when the police narrative against the three Nepalese men had failed, 
they began focusing their attentions on Rajesh and Nippur. Being led away by the police on one news channel, Rajesh screamed, they're framing me for all to hear. The police tried to close the case, but the Talwars protested this as well. In response, the magistrate turned the closure report into a charge sheet, charging the Talwars with the murder of their daughter. Rajesh and Nippur were found guilty of murder, destruction of evidence, and misleading the police. They were sentenced to life in prison, where they currently remain. So, I named this episode the Noida Whodunit, not to be flippant about the tragedy, but kind of a nod to how I think people treated the case as it happened. This occurred in 2008, one of the first major crimes since the 24-hour news cycle came into place in India, and certainly one of the more scandalous crimes. You've got a rich family, a poor servant, a possible affair, is it a locked room mystery, who is in the house? It honestly reads a little like an Agatha Christie book. While I only mentioned the media very briefly in describing how the investigation unfolded, I need to emphasize what an impact they had on it. They began by pushing the angle of police incompetence, which rightfully outraged the people. In response, perhaps, the police began to release information that would make them seem as though they had made progress, while also appealing to the press. For example, there was a complete and utter destruction of Arushi's image to fit the narrative. This was a 14-year-old girl, right? And the police released out-of-context emails to her father that painted their relationship as sour, that made her seem promiscuous, when really, she was just a sweet high school student. In fact, her classmates held a candlelight vigil at their school, not for her death, but for the death of her image. Her classmates were horrified at how she was portrayed. It was almost like a second murder. The police and the media played a game, almost, of releasing information that would play best to the public. I mean, I doubt they were in cahoots because, you know, it's common to criticize the justice system in India. They have a reputation for being incompetent. But the media had to make money, and the more scandalous the crime, the more views they would get. And I think it did, in the end, convince people that the Talwars punished Arushi as a result of being intimate with Hemraj. Regardless of what the evidence said, bizarrely, I think people are simply more eager to buy the idea of wealthy parents killing a child they doted on, rather than the idea of a stranger breaking in. I'm guessing this is starting to sound familiar to anyone who likes true crime. There is the larger picture of crime documentaries and podcasts like Serial making everyone with an internet connection feel like an expert. And yes, this is a true crime podcast, but I do encourage you to vary in your opinion on the murder because I'm obviously not able to read off or even know every single detail about a case. Frankly, the police messed up so bad here that they don't even know every detail about the case, and some of their incompetence is just baffling. But the media always pushes narratives, and you have to be especially careful of this in entertainment media, where they're not bound by the laws or the moral laws of the news, and even then. But that aside, there are two points I want to make here. The first is that when a Western audience thinks of India, and I don't think most Western people think of India as a first world country. 
they do picture incompetence, lack of technology, people riding elephants, just a mess. There's also this idea, again, of Asians being primitive. The honor killing narrative that was pushed in the Indian media was scandalous because it was an upper middle class family, but it suited the narrative of the conservative man punishing his modern daughter. And in hearing this story, I think that's, again, another narrative that Western people will think, oh, honor killings, that only happens over there. It fits a trope. When at the same time, we do have honor killings in the West, we just don't call them by that name. And if your counter argument is that, oh, it's not culturally acceptable in the West like it is in Asia, well, Frankly, it is culturally acceptable to attack women for not being pure and virginal, but you know that already, just by how what was she wearing is the first question people ask when a woman gets assaulted. Anyways, the first point is that this crime could have happened identically in the United States or Britain with tiny variations, so don't picture this as an Indian crime. It's truly an upper-middle-class crime with the same vulture-like media destroying families as they do overseas. And the same totally incapable police force because honestly, you only need to read about a few unsolved crimes in the West to land on one that will never be solved due to police incompetence. And judges condemning the wrong person to life or to death? That's international. So please shift the paradigm if you think incompetence only happens in so-called poor countries. The second point is that, man, does this not make you rethink the John Bonet Ramsey case? Time Magazine nailed it when they called it India's John Bonet. And for those of you who are somehow unfamiliar, John Bonet Ramsey was a pageant queen who was found dead in her house at the age of six. Her parents called the police, found a ransom note, invited all their friends over, Police incompetence and people in the house destroyed a lot of the scene as much as her parents insisted on an intruder coming in. And I think most people assume that the parents did it, or John Bonet's younger brother, because they were the only people in the house. But is that not what you assumed in this story before hearing the possibility that three of Hemraj's friends entered the apartment? The case looms large in the American consciousness, in large part due to the media-friendly nature of it. A beautiful little girl, a wealthy family in a good neighborhood, potential sexual element to the crime, an alleged intruder but no evidence of entry, small details that are out of place. But are they suspicious details, or just police mistakes, or just people reading too much into things? We're never going to know who did it, but I have a lot more sympathy for the Ramses after hearing about the Talwars. While I can't confirm that there were outsiders who came in to murder Arushi and Hemraj, I also cannot confirm that the parents did it. And think, there wasn't even evidence that someone else had been in their apartment. It's interesting that John Bonet's case is considered quite unique when I feel like it's a precedent to this case from Noida. Yes, there are elements that made her case even more outlandish, but whatever ideas you have about the Ramsey parents, consider how much the media's portrayal had to do with what you're thinking. And as you're approaching the case of the Talwars with new eyes, maybe reflect upon that case and think about how a narrative 
has cemented itself into your consciousness. And isn't it amazing how truth gets lost under a couple shoe prints? Asia is created, edited, and researched by Melissa Powers. This episode was edited by Katya Ungerman. The theme song is Lasha Kyopyanga by George Frederick Kandel, performed by Bert Delink. If you like what you hear, hit subscribe and write a review. It helps us move up the charts. You can find us at www.asianoscarbait.com slash truecrime where you can also hear our sister podcast, Asian Oscar Bait, about Asian representation in the media. We'll be back in January because I won't have my microphone on vacation. If you want to know more about the case, there is, in fact, a podcast that covers it in detail. It's called Trial by Error, and I highly recommend it.